what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not know by the faithfulness of God, will it? Man never be. Rather, let God be found true. Your every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my life the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. Okay, so the Jew might respond, so what good is it being a Jew? What advantage do we have? And Paul says, none at all. Is that what he says? No. He says, actually, you've got a lot of blessings, a lot of advantages in every respect. He says, first of all, he doesn't bother to go with the second and third. We will get that in chapter 9. But kind of like we sometimes do, we start with the first and we never get around to the rest of them, I think. But first of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. That is a tremendous blessing. They have the law. They have the gospel. They have the truth. Wow. That is wonderful. Think about that. And think about some passages in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 4. It's a really cool passage, verse 7 and 8. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God, whatever we call on him? For what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I'm setting before you today? What nation has a law like ours? What, is, what nation has a God so close to us as ours? There was such a blessing for the Jews in having the law. Psalm 147. Psalm 147. Verse uh, 19. He declares his words to Jacob, his statutes, his ordinances to Israel. He's not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his ordinance, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. God's not given other nations. That's such a wonderful revelation as he's given uh, in, uh, in the gospel. Uh, so the, the advantage of the Jew is he has the oracles of God. We underestimate sometimes the blessing of having the scriptures. It's a wonderful blessing to have God's Word. We have it in multiple translations, in print, online, on our phone, wherever, at any, anywhere, anytime. We, we've got such a blessing. We ought to be the people who know the Bible better than any generation ever has. We have been blessed so much by God's revelation. That is wonderful. But they didn't keep the law they were blessed with. So it didn't ultimately save them or change their status before God. He said, what then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? It's almost like, well, if they don't keep the law, then all of God's promises are out the window and it didn't really help them. Well, God's faithful whether man's unfaithful or not. God's always right. It doesn't make God unfaithful because we didn't keep the law. And in fact, our unrighteousness, he says, well, he cites Psalm 51, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. 
God was righteous in his judgment of David because David was a sinner. So, God shows himself right when he condemns us for doing what's wrong. So he asked the question, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, then why does God punish? He says, no, no, you've got that all wrong. He doesn't want anybody drawing the false conclusion that we ought to just do wrong for God to be shown right. He says, that would mean God couldn't even judge the world. And furthermore, he says, why not say as we are slanderously reported and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come, their condemnation is just. Paul's opponents were falsely accusing him of teaching we ought to do wrong so the good will come. You understand how they did that? Paul was teaching salvation by grace through faith. And they were saying, okay, so you're just encouraging people to sin. You're just saying that we can sin and it's not going to matter. And so really you're encouraging sin. Now, that's not true. Paul's gospel of God's grace gives the power to overcome sin. It doesn't encourage sin. And we'll see that a whole lot more in chapter 6, 7, and 8. He will deal with that specifically. But we got a preview right here. So Paul is not saying, let us do evil, the good may come. Not at all. But, but the Jews had an advantage, but not a saving advantage, because they didn't keep the law. And God was righteous when he condemned them. Thoughts and comments? Yes. It just reminds me of when Peter was saying, uh, saying about Paul that his writings can be hard, can be weak or unstable mind, can twist those things. You know, he, he, he deals with a lot of philosophical things that if, if you're not versed in logic very well, you don't, you're not good at thinking. You can just take some of Paul's stuff out of context and say, well, yeah, look at this. That means this and this and this can happen. Yeah, well, you know, more difficult statements lend themselves to being perverted when we have a bad heart. When we really want to believe something that's wrong, difficult statements kind of give the open door to that. Well, then, the summary, 9 through uh, 20. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. He summarizes. Both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. We're all under sin. As, as sin is sort of like the, the on top of us, weighing us down. Perhaps we're he's the, the master. It's the power over us. We're under sin. And he, he cites Old Testament passages. He just joins together a bunch of different verses from the Old Testament to make the case we are all sinners. 
Look at verse 10, 11, and 12. There's none righteous, not even one. I mean, you know, it's like, how can you say it plainer? There's none righteous, not even one. How many does that mean there are? Zero, right? Uh, there's none who understands, none who seeks for God. All of you are aside, together they become useless. There's none who does good, there's not even one. Again, how can you miss that? If there's not even one, it's not you. Because <laughs> there's nobody. <laughs> we're all under sin. And, and you know you know the sins we are most likely to commit of all? Sins of the tongue. There are throats in open grave, there are tongues that keep deceiving, the poison of life is under their lips, with whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Who can say they're not guilty of sins of the tongue? I mean, nobody can uh, claim innocence there. You know, they open their mouth and venom comes out. Uh, the rotten heart produces rotten speech. So he just kind of goes through the sequence, the throat, the tongue, the lip, the mouth, kind of lists the body parts in producing speech. All of it's corrupt. That's the universal verdict on the human race. Sin. Sinners. He says their feet are swift to shed blood. They're eager for it. They want to do wrong. Destruction and misery in their paths like some killer hurricane believes this path of destruction, a path of peace they've not known. There's no fear of God before his eyes. That's the starting point. Wisdom starting point is the fear of God. If they don't have the fear of God, then they won't go in the right direction. So that's that's man. All sinners, all lost, all condemned. Now he says in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable before God. These passages Paul used in 10 through 18, where did they come from? The Old Testament. Who is the Old Testament written to? If, if those words apply to anybody, they apply to the Jews. It's the Jewish law that says not even one. So every mouth is to be closed. The weight of evidence against it. All, no flesh uh, uh, will be justified in his sight. Verse 20. No person based upon their own, on their own strength, will be right before God. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Really, the law shows me I'm a sinner. The law doesn't give me the power to overcome sin. The law becomes the instrument of condemnation because I've broken the law. So nobody, no Jew, no anybody will be right on the basis of his record. We talked about this idea that innocence is normally based on not doing wrong. You don't do wrong, you're innocent. Right? You're guilty if you do do wrong. So where are we? We're sinners. We're, we're wrongdoers. We need the gospel. We've got to teach that basic principle. You know, have you thought about this? Why isn't it just a wonderful thing to teach the gospel? It's great news. Well, because sometimes we have to teach the bad news first. You're lost and you're a sinner. It is great news once you understand the truth. But sometimes you have to find out the bad news before you'll appreciate the good news. So Paul teaches the gospel here. First, the bad news. Everybody's a sinner. Then when he shows how you can be righteous before God, even though you're a sinner. It's almost like magic. Let me tell you something. You would assume that people on death row would love to get their hands on some way of being declared innocent, even though they're guilty. 
Wow. If you had some method of making innocent, guilty people before this, in the society of the, the law of the, of the land, there's a bunch of criminals who'd love to talk to you. <laughs> you know, they, they're looking for some way. There is a way. The gospel provides the way where we can be innocent before God in spite of the universal verdict. All are sinners, not even one is righteous. So we needed this dose of the wrath of God to appreciate what's been given by the grace of God. Thoughts or comments? Ben? When we're teaching others, we start with, you are in sin, but we also can start with, we were in sin too before we came to uh, salvation. The Pharisees, uh, in Matthew 23, they were uh, having this appearance of righteousness, and that's what Jesus uh, condemns them for, because he, he says the woes, you know, about them uh, being like whitewashed tombs, uh, and we can have that appearance too of uh, righteousness on the outside, and we can start with uh, our own sin. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. We're no, we're we're not an exception. We're sinners as well, and uh, you know, arrogance has no place in our in our heart or attitude. Scott? Just a quick question for us teaching, and we're all going to have to do it, someone coming from a Calvinistic standpoint to the way you use the book of Romans. This one saved always same thing. What you just taught makes perfectly good sense to get help, help but how do we help them see the context of this saying, look, what he's talking about is just showing that everyone is a sinner. It doesn't mean that we cannot be saved. With, we can do what's right. He's just showing that because we're not saved because what we do is right. How so, do we help people see this and the big picture of what this book is really saying? Well, I think it depends on the whole book. What he's doing right now is just showing all men are sinners. But he is showing that we're sinners because we do evil, because our conduct is wrong, not because of Adam's sin, not because we were born sinners or whatever. I mean, I think what we just looked at from 118 to 320 would be we are wrong because we've made wrong choices. But what he's going to show is that we have the power by God's grace to have faith in Jesus and be saved. And and they have a lot of problems in Romans with the idea of salvation being conditional. In fact, some of them will say we are not even saved by faith because faith is is something men do. And we, we don't do anything. And I've seen some of the Calvinists just do some ridiculous things with these texts because it shows salvation is conditional. Conditioned on our faith. But they would say God zaps you to give you the faith, that faith is not a human choice. But why write any of this if we have no choice? So I think I think really seeing the whole picture of Romans helps in this I think almost any passage does. Uh, because they overlook, they, they funnel everything through that narrow perspective that everything is based upon only God's choice and what I do has nothing to do with it. But wow, you just have to fly in the face of so much the gospel teaches. Matt? No, is it fair to say that uh, here in chapter 3 he's still looking at the theoretical side of things? I'm in a study with a friend right now discussing the idea of whether or not this all on the first verses includes uh, children who have not yet been opportunity to be sin or not. And when I'm looking down at verses 23 and 24, 
that does use the same word all, referring to both sin and being justified, which obviously not everyone uh, believes in God and is therefore justified. So is he still talking about the hypothetical that all? No, I think he's talking about people who can do this. When he says their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, that's not true of a Jew mouthful. Their mouth is full of, you know, nothing. No words. You know, their feet are swift to shed blood. That's not true of a two month old. You know, whatever. So, he's clearly talking about people accountable before God who do sinful things. So, I think it's just a. Uh, he's dealing with adults. He's doing, dealing with mature people. He's not dealing with babies. Which we wouldn't understand anything else. We'd say, John Smith's family loves steak. But little baby Smith doesn't love steak. We understand that. You know, we make that automatic exception. Somebody who's not qualified in the household, that's not true of. So he's talking about the universal picture, but a responsible account. I just want to say real quick, I think it's helpful to kind of sit for a little bit in that guilt sometimes. As, as Christians, I think we can just, you know, kind of take for granted the gospel. Um, and sometimes we we kind of look over that we even need the gospel. Right. Even though we have been baptized, we think the gospel is for is exclusively for the ones who have not been baptized yet. Like, that's the ones that need the gospel. Yeah, they need the gospel, but we need the gospel too, because we are guilty. And we'll see more about that. Joe. In uh, chapter 3, verses 10, well, 10 through 12, uh, quoting from Psalm 14, would you tie that with Romans 1.2 and see Paul sort of working that thought? In Romans 1, the Jews would be saying, yes, that's right, they, they're foolish. And then, but it seems that maybe Paul purposefully skips that very first sentence in Romans 14.1. Uh, the fool has said the character of no God. That's exactly where the Jews are as well. Uh, so it's almost as if they would have been crying out, Amen, to Romans 1, 18 through 32. Then he comes back and says, No, when I said that professing to be wise and foolish, I was talking about people also. Certainly, yeah. I, and I think there's, somebody's mentioned this to me in the break, there's a lot of Jew Gentile tension revealed in this book. I'm not sure exactly what was going on, but I do think there were problems because of the new Gentile relationship in the church world. And so I think it is important that we see both Jews and Gentiles are equally needy before the Lord. John? Um, Romans 3 verse 9 ends up having this Jew-Greek thing relative to all, for we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin, and so it, that's part of that Jew-Greek tension, that's part of the definition of what he means by all later on, is it's not just those Gentiles are bad, the world is bad, the Jews are as bad as the Gentiles, both sides are equal. To it. Yeah, it really pushes that so many ways. It's everybody. Peterson. I think uh, this is a good passage, chapter 3, to go to sit down the, the humble and not, not humble. Uh, yeah. If I'm having a bad day, I don't know if you know what chapter 3, but if I were to read Romans chapter 3 and I'm having a bad day, I'd probably be like, oh man, I don't want to listen to this. Uh, but I think for someone, like some, someone who has a hard heart, or, or someone who has a humble heart, read this and like, man, this, this is horrible. 
but this is me, or somebody, as opposed to somebody who has a hard heart, they'll probably, you know, probably throw the Bible in the trash. I don't, I don't believe in this, in this trash or something like that. You know? So I think this, this requires a, a soft heart. Some of us don't like to face the truth about ourselves. I mean, that's hard. Some people, that insults them to think that they're not perfect. They're, they know they're right with God. You know, and uh, so learn that is is a big uh, come down for some people. All right, so we are going to sing some songs that relate to this. Uh, I'm hoping you all have access to a songbook and a folder or some stable sheets that have some extra songs on it. So you should have a songbook and something else at least accessible to your neighbor or whatever. If nobody doesn't, raise your hand and we'll get into this passage in the Bible. And so I think it would be good for us to take a break. And then we'll come back to work. That the goal is not just to find out what we have to do. We need to learn what to do. But we need to go farther than just learning what to do. We need to learn the why of what we do. We need to understand more deeply what the gospel is really all about, what God was doing in the gospel. Sometimes I think I have shied away from deeper studies and more complicated topics because they're hard to teach. And because sometimes, you know, it just doesn't seem as practical. I'm not talk, we're not talking so much about we've got to do this, you have to do that. But everything in the Bible is important to us. The parts that we don't know are very important to us. And I believe that some of the problems doctrinally that are occurring in our generation are largely a result of having not taught some things that need to be taught. That almost anything we don't teach is going to come back to bite us. And so this is, this is complex. It's a fairly brief passage here. But, but some of the thoughts here are very deep and, and thought-provoking. Uh, hopefully we can understand it together. There may be some divergence of thought. I'm glad to entertain that in this. Uh, obviously, truth doesn't fear investigation. So often, if a view is challenged and you can show the answer, it makes what you're saying even stronger. Um, so we'll, we'll go with this and see where it goes. So would somebody read? Well, let me do this. I wanted to review then what we've seen. The wrath of God against all unrighteousness. God gave them over. They didn't honor God, their bodies were dishonored. Exchange the truth of God for a lie. Exchange your natural use of body for unnatural. Rejected God, they had a rejected life. The good moral person needs the gospel. The Jew needs the gospel. Despite the law, despite circumcision, what advantage has the Jew? All are under sin. That's basically that section we had. Everybody needs the gospel. That would be my outline, more or less, of that section. If you want to come back and get outlines or whatever, you can you can do that uh, when you have time. But let's go to the next slide. All right, these are the points he makes about justification here. So would somebody read 21 to 26? <laughs> but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness 
because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we're just going to go through these point by point. But now, there is a shift in time before and now. All history is divided into then and now. Before and after the events of the gospel, things were quite different. So the plight of mankind has been radically altered by the coming of Jesus. But now, apart from the law. Now, if you want to be justified by law, there is one way to do it. And what's that way? Keep it. You keep the law, you're justified by it. I am actually innocent based upon the law of murder. I have not actually ever killed anybody by, by my earlier illustration. So on that basis, I'm innocent. Now, unfortunately, there are other laws. But on that one, I'm innocent. If you want to be innocent before the law completely, then you have to keep it all. That is not a practical salvation method for us. Because... We've all broken the law. We're all sinners. We're all criminals. You know, and, and to know that if you don't kill anybody, then you're not guilty of the law of murder, doesn't really help the guys who ought to kill somebody. So this is apart from the law. This is a righteousness based upon, not based upon what, doing, what, what the law demands. This is a righteousness that's possible for sinners. That's the great thing. This is apart from the law. The righteousness of God. Um... There, there are a couple of things that the righteousness of God can do. The righteousness of God can refer to God's character, God's nature. God's a righteous God. So we can talk about his righteousness in the sense that he's a righteous God. But we can also talk about his way of making men righteous. He has a way of innocentizing men. And, and I think that's what he's talking about here. The righteousness of God, this way of making men right before him, has been manifested. It's been shown. God's shown it. Being witnessed by the law of the prophets. Now, one of the points that Paul is careful to make in Romans is that this is not some newfangled doctrine. The law of the prophets taught this in principle. When he goes to show salvation by faith in chapter 4, he will use Abraham and David as his illustrations. Men under the old... Era. So there's a sense in which there is a continuity of teaching. The Old Testament anticipated and predicted this new way of righteousness. Uh, and we'll see a lot of that. We'll see a lot of appeal to the Old Testament to show that there has been in principle this same concept just not fully revealed until Jesus came. He says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is basically the condition God sets for us to receive the status of innocence. God declares us innocent on the basis of our faith. Now remember what we said about faith. In Romans, we're not talking about a dead faith. We're talking about an obedient faith. But faith is the opposite of self-reliance. The opposite of earning our merit. We don't deserve it. We receive it by our obedient trust. Not by our earning it by keeping the law perfectly. 
And he emphasizes this by repetition. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Because there is no for there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Now it's for all who believe because all are in the same situation. All are sinners. Uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, we often misstate that. How many times have you quoted that? All have sinned and fallen short. That's not what it says. All have sinned and present tense fall short. We are currently falling short of the glory of God because we have sinned. So he's saying we have all sinned and therefore we are, have, we are short. We, we fall short of the glory of God. We must come to grips with the fact that we are failures, and it's our fault. Whatever the Jewish privileges, in other respects, in terms of salvation and being right before God, we're all in the same situation. All are lost. Now, think about this. Would you say that every single human being has, has sinned with the exact same quantity of sins? No. That wouldn't be true. Are there some people who sin less than other people? Yes, that's true. Are there some people who commit sins that are perhaps less weighty than others? Yeah, I think that's probably true as well. But here's the deal. What if I would ask you the question, are you closer to the moon on top of Mount Everest or in Death Valley? I suppose technically you're probably closer to the moon on top of Mount Everest. I mean, it would be a difference of, what, five or six miles out of how... Was it 93 million? Is that to the moon or the sun? I don't know. Is it billion or what? Is that to the sun? Uh, how far is it to the moon? Not, not really that far, but long. <laughs> Farther than six miles is going to make a difference. You know, it's like, well, you might technically be able to say that you're close to the moon on top of Mount Everest, but in practical terms, it's a negligible difference. I mean, basically speaking, we're all guilty sinners. And if you want to quibble, well, you've committed one more sin than I have, does it really matter? You know, if two guys are mass murderers, and one <laughs> killed 45 people, and the other one's killed 48, do you applaud the guy who only killed 45? And they go, oh, you only killed 45. You're much better than that other guy. You know, it's like, when we see sin for what it is, if we could look at our sins the way God, we would look at murderers. If we could see our sins the way God does, see, they're really serious. Then it doesn't really matter if we technically have committed a few less, or maybe even less serious. You know, they're all serious before God. They're all, they all separate me from God. And I am impossibly lost without the grace of God. So he's saying that we are all, we've all sinned, and we fall short of the glory of God. There is no distinction. But, being justified as a gift. Now, this gift is by his grace. So he stresses with gift and grace that this method of salvation is totally undeserved, unmerited. Now, if you were justified by law, that would be your accomplishment, your own efforts, and you would deserve salvation. But if you're saved by a gift, by grace, you don't deserve it. It was something you were given 
by the generosity of the donor. He says, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Redemption basically means liberating by paying a ransom. Jesus died as a ransom for us. He came to give his life as a ransom. The, the thing that had to be done to free us from sin was Jesus dying on the cross. His blood is the ransom price. We're given forgiveness by his blood. And you understand when we look at all these passages that talk about we're forgiven by his blood. We are saying by his death. It wouldn't have been the same if Jesus cut himself with blood. It's not by his blood in that sense. We're saying by his sacrifice of himself. We are bought with a price. Verse 26 and so forth. Look at Galatians 3 for a moment. In Galatians 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessed Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Jesus redeemed us from the curse because he was made a curse for us. He suffered our curse himself. So he redeemed us by paying the ransom price, which is what would have been required from us. We would have had to have died, and instead Jesus died in our place. <coughs> he says, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. That word propitiation is an important word. I believe correctly defined, it means an atonement that satisfies wrath. Now, the wrath of God has been an overarching theme up to this point in the book of Romans. So the idea that Jesus provides the atonement that satisfies God's wrath is a part of this book. There are a lot of people who don't like the idea that God has wrath against sin. And so they try to find ways around the idea that God's wrath was being appeased, that, that his wrath was being satisfied. But I believe God's character demands that he have wrath against sin. That God's character demands that sin is punished. God requires propitiation because he's just. He provides propitiation because he's merciful. But the propitiation is the idea of the sacrifice. You think about the Old Testament concept of sacrifice. I remember Robert Turner teaching this to me. He said, man sins, man dies. He cross out, he's asked out the man, and he put the lamb in the place of the man. The man sins, man dies, no, the lamb would die in the place of the man. Of course, prefiguring the ultimate lamb, because a, you know, dumb animal can't take man's place ultimately, but prefiguring the lamb of God, who would die in our place. The point is, he took the punishment that our sins deserve. Now, he says, this was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Right, think about that. I think we're talking about people in the Old Testament. Did God forgive men's sins in the Old Testament? How do you know? Because of Leviticus says so. Leviticus says so. That's always good. Bible answers are good. <laughs> Can you think of anybody in the Old Testament that was forgiven? David. David. That's a great example. I mean, didn't Nathan say your sins are forgiven? 
So, I mean, we're going to go against the Bible if we say sins weren't forgiven in the Old Testament, right? Um, they, they were not punished. I mean, I don't believe that, that David was lost because of that sin. I believe God forgave him. But, can you say that in the Old Testament, there was an adequate basis for forgiveness? There really wasn't. Now, God was being nice and forgiving. But in the Old Testament, it looked like God was being nice but not just. I'll tell you, being in prison a lot, you see the attitude of criminals toward judges. They like the opposite judges that I like. You know, I think a judge ought to do justice. And if the guy's done the crime, he ought to do the time, right? They don't think that. They think the good judges are the ones that let the criminals off the hook. Because of that perspective. If you're a criminal, you like nice guy judges. But we see that's not actually just. As guilty sinners before God, we like a nice guy guy. Who will say, oh, it's okay. But that's not really just. That is not righteous. It's nice, but it's not righteous. So, God forgave sins. He, he demonstrated his... So, so, Jesus' death demonstrated God's righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. So, the cross shows how God was right in not punishing those sins. How he was right in forgiving their sins... Because he was looking forward to the sacrifice of Jesus. The only basis upon which any sin can be forgiven by God is the propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus absorbing God's wrath is taking my, my punishment upon himself. That he had to satisfy the demands of God's justice and wrath. Now, people do all kinds of things with what I consider this to be a very fundamental Bible teaching. It will say, well, are you saying that God and Jesus were mad at each other? By no means. God loved us and gave Jesus for this. God wanted Jesus to do this. Jesus was submitting to his Father's will. They were united in this. This is not some God turned against God and hated himself. This was Jesus doing what God determined and and and. Accepting and receiving the punishment that our sins deserve upon Himself. Now, it's almost like this. Imagine that you have a bill coming to you. And so you write a check. I know that's kind of obsolete, we do it online anymore. But I'm from the old school, I still write a check. My wife does when she pays the bills, but if I was going to do it, I couldn't do it online. So you pay it, write a check, and you send it. You know what, what sometimes people would do is you write the check before there's money in the bank to pay the check. Because you knew in the, in the course of getting it through the mail and them taking a day to open it and deposit it, by that time you'll have the money in there. So you write really a check on insufficient funds because you know you're going to put the money in there by the time it comes to pay the check. That's kind of what God did. He wrote the check of forgiveness for people who were sinners in the Old Testament, based upon the fact that he knew the blood of Christ would be in the account by the time it came to do, by the time he had to pay the check. 
Now, we can't do that very well. I do not recommend writing a check before you have the money in the bank. You think you're going to put that money in the bank, but who knows what might happen. So that's a very risky business. It wasn't risky for God. God knew what was going to happen. You know, God's not time-bound. So God infallibly knew that Jesus would die and pay the price for our sin. So he's saying that Jesus showed how God was righteous when he forgave men's sins in the Old Testament. We saw how God was nice when he forgave men's sins in the Old Testament. But he didn't look righteous. Jesus' death shows, okay, that's how God was righteous when he forgave men's sins in the Old Testament. Because he knew Jesus' blood would be in the bank to pay off the debt. Now, look at what he says in 26. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, Jesus' death enabled God to justify believers and still be just. Typically, it would be this way. Think about a judge. Man's guilty of murder. If the judge is just, what will he do with the, with the murderer? Pronounce a verdict with guilty, right? He'll say he's guilty. On the other hand, if the judge is super nice, maybe he'll say he's not guilty. But you can't be both. And in human terms, you can't be a just judge and let the guilty criminal off the hook. You're not just if you do that. If you're just, you don't justify. So it seems like a contradiction of terms to be just and justify the sinner. That was resolved. That, that contradiction was resolved by punishing sin in Jesus. Jesus took the penalty. He died in our place. He suffered the wrath of God against him. He absorbed our, what, what had to be absorbed. He died as the substitute for us. And so now we can be forgiven, and yet God's still just. Sin was punished. Sin was punished in Jesus, not in us. I believe that's the genius of the gospel. I believe that's exactly what these passages say. Again, I would say, that is not anymore uh, a given. There's a lot of brethren who don't believe that. But, but that, I, I would ask this question. If Jesus didn't die, to provide the propitiation. He didn't die in my place. Why did he have to die? What value did his death have for us if it wasn't to satisfy the demands of justice and to enable God then to be the justifier of the one who has faith? Jesus took our place. He was the sacrifice. He suffered the wrath of God for us. I believe that's what this passage is saying. And I believe it's really important for us to think through that. It makes what Jesus did so incredibly wonderful. Wow, nobody else could have done it. Matt couldn't have died for me. You know why? Matt's a nice guy, but he's a sinner. He would have had to die for himself. Only Jesus could have done that. And he did. Thoughts and comments on that question. Questions and uh, differences. Yes, it does. Because that idea of Jesus' blood forgiving the sins of those under the first covenant. Yes, that's exactly right. 
Yeah. That, I don't believe that there's anybody who's ever been forgiven by God at any moment in time that wasn't forgiven by the sacrifice of Jesus. Yeah. Uh, the illustration of the courtroom scene, I guess it's wonder, so in our current law system, someone could not say, you know what, this murderer uh, is guilty, but I'm, I'll, I'll go to prison instead, I'll take care of that, and so how should we see in these illustrations you're bringing up regarding the courtroom the difference between how God's justice is and then how we perceive justice, at least on um, in our our, our our Yeah, probably we wouldn't do that, but it is still a matter that satisfies God's justice. <laughs> Sin was punished. Uh, you have some illustrations. I've read somewhere like the judge actually executed the punishment on himself, he blinded himself, that was what the punishment was, or something like that. Um, and that seems a little more moving, uh, maybe. But but yeah, I don't know that we have to say that we would have exactly the same system. Uh, but but you can see the logic behind what God did. That from his standpoint with judicial wrath, if, if, if a perfect sacrifice paid the penalty, then God by right could be righteous and let them go. So it's more or less God's courtroom, not man's. I think that's what I would say. Maybe somebody has a better answer. Other comments, questions? Yes, Steve. When I read this passage about being both just and the justifier, it is a really compelling argument for the wisdom the power of God. And so in a different context in chapter 11, how unsearchable are the might of God is. This is one of those things that, that uh, shows all us all to think about how, how could how's it gonna work this out? Satan couldn't figure it out, Jews couldn't figure it out, Gentiles couldn't figure it out. Yes, it is it's an extremely wise you know, you would think it took a lot of uh, ingenuity to think through that. I would say it's also extremely gracious for God to take the punishment upon himself. For Jesus, I think Jesus' death was more than just a physical death. I think he was bearing our sins and taking our punishment. So that was much more anguishing and much more horrible for him. And we won't ever have to go through that for because he took our place. So I think it shows the wisdom of God. It shows the incredible grace and mercy of God. I, I don't know that we will ever understand fully what Jesus went through to justify us. But he, he loved us. He loved us, who were sinners, who were wicked, who were enemies. He loved us and was willing to make the supreme price to save us. It's amazing. God is so gracious and merciful. Other thoughts? Yes, Mike. Yes, and he will say in 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? We might neglect to think about the pain that the father suffered in this, but we should not. That's, that's a very real thing, too. It's not just what Jesus went through, 
But God is not sparing his own son and delivering him up for us all. He suffered. Uh, again, I don't know that we can really comprehend the depth of the suffering of the Godhead that they went through to justify us. Peterson. Uh, I just think verse, uh, verse 26 is really amplified in chapter 23. And it talks about you know, how man is falling short. Yes. And Hebrews chapter 3 goes in on you know, none is righteous, it goes over just a description yeah, to think about the kind of people God justifies. We're not like good guys. Anything else? Yeah. You would say that the first two mentions of the righteousness of God in verse 21 and 22 would be similar to the usage in Philippians 3 and 9. Correct. And in the second two would be referring to God's actual righteousness in and of Yes. Yes, I would 25 26. Yes, I think so. That is a challenge then, because we're using righteousness of God in different senses. Sometimes for his making us righteous, and sometimes for his own personal righteousness and justice. I do think there is that shift. And there, this is a deep, dense passage. There's, it's using a lot of terms that are challenging and putting them together in ways you have to think through. I think what we did is correct, but there's a lot of debate over some of these issues, even some of the translation of the terms. So go back through and think it through. But I, I really believe this is the heart of the gospel. I think this is what it's all about. And I really think if we can get this down and understand it and defend it, we'll be more immune to some false teachings that are so common in our day. Other things? Okay. 27 to 31. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but of the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that this man is justified, that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. So here are some results or um, some conclusions of justification. I believe he says things in this section that will be amplified in chapter 4. I'll explain that in a minute. So he says, where then is boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? Works no but by law of faith. We have no way to boast. This salvation on the humble sinners, we didn't do it for ourselves, God did it for us. There's there's no self-justification, so there's no pride. You know, if, if we deserved it, then we could boast of our merit. We didn't deserve it. God gave it to us by His grace. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You know, if somebody offers you a million dollars, if you'll go to the bank and get it, do you highlight, man, I went to the bank so well. Man, I just did that. I, I mean, nobody's ever gone to the bank quite like I did. Well, no! I mean, really, anybody can go to the bank. It doesn't take much. Somebody was generous and gave you a million dollars. So, when, it, when all God asks for is our faith, 
And here's the thing. This is salvation for wicked sinners. This is hope for you and me who are wrong, who have, who have sinned, who are hopeless. And God saves us on the basis of His grace and mercy. We really have to think about that and, and have to appreciate that. And so we have nothing to brag about. We haven't done anything to brag about. All we did is receive a wonderful gift. And, and it's not a gift based upon perfection. It's a gift where God continues demonstrating His grace and mercy and transforming us. This is, this also, so, so that is the, the theme of chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Chapter 4, 1 through 8 will amplify that. Second point, 29 and 30. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not also the God of Gentiles? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God will justify the uncircumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. In other words, he unites believers. There's no discrimination. There's no difference between what God does for the Jews and the Gentiles. There's no other God, so he's the God of all. He justifies all men the same way. Jew and Gentile, same thing. They're in the same situation. Lost, guilty sinners who need God's grace. So really what you see is this obliterates the distinction between Jews and Gentiles. And that will be the theme of chapter 4, verses 9 to 17. And then the last point, verse 31, do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. So he's saying that this is not against the law. This is the fulfillment of what the law says. Um, you know, he will use, like I said, Abraham, Genesis 15, and David, Psalm 32, to say this is justification even in the Old Testament. This is not nullifying the law. This is fulfilling the types and shadows and prophecies and even the things done in the law. So this is not, the, the, the New Testament is not fighting against the Old Testament. The New Testament is fulfilling the Old Testament. The Old Testament is, is realized in the New Testament. So, and really, that's what he's going to show in, in Romans 4, is that this is a part of God's justification throughout the ages. Questions and comments there on the end of chapter 3. Steve? Any difference between <coughs> my faith and truth? I don't think so. I think he's just using different positions for a variety of sense. I think typically the old law, but I don't think it matters. I mean, we are not saved by law, old law or any other law, because law can't save us, because if law could save us, we'd have to be perfect. So here's what I think we should say. Well, you know, God gave the law of Moses, and it was nice and all that, but it wasn't very good law. So man couldn't save himself by that law, but then Jesus came along and gave us the New Testament, the perfect law, and now we can save ourselves by that law. No, 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 no. First of all, there wasn't anything bad about the Old Testament. It was a fine and wonderful law. Paul will say that in chapter 7. The problem was us. We couldn't keep it. We didn't keep it. So I don't think we've switched laws and now we're saved by the law of the New Testament. We're not saved by the law, period. But I think most of the time he's thinking about the Old Testament law as the illustration of what law would be. Good question. Other questions? Yes? The thought in 30, since God is one, is Well, what about the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament? And, and that 
confusion that, that they, they sense and seeing that there. Um, I, I think we kind of read over that as we go through that. But it's an important thought to remember that, that there is only one God. There is no distinction between Jew, Greek, Gentile, uh, slave, free. There is one God, and he is consistent, and he expects consistent things. Yeah, absolutely. I think the oneness of God affects so much. And it does make all of us in the same situation. It doesn't make any difference what your ethnicity, your social status, or anything else. None of that matters. We're all lost sinners. Though we're all created by God, and God seeks to redeem. Jesus died for all, and he wants to save all. <coughs> Other questions? Alright, we're going to sing and then study some more uh, before we go take a break. So we're going to sing uh, a little bit.